freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hey, culminators. We're back, and I'm really excited about this because uh, those of you who follow me have probably picked up over the years that I'm an old radio hand. You might not even know that I did my senior thesis in college on the topic of uh, spectrum allocation and the Coase theorem. And today I am uh, bringing on as a guest, Brendan Carr, who is a commissioner of the Federal Communications Commission. Thanks for joining us. Well, wonderful to join you here. And now that you brought up your old radio broadcast, I meant to tell you, Ron, we've been going back at the FCC uh, over the tapes there. and There's some indecency violations (laughs) that have been uh, really racking up over time. But, you know, I'll give you the good get out of jail free card for now. I I appreciate that. I I, I guess technically I probably still have my my license, which you remember, you had to basically send in a postcard and you got back a postcard. <laughs> yeah. You had a, a, and I don't even remember what section it was under, but I loved, I loved doing radio and I, and I was obsessed with, with radio. Uh, but I also saw the folly of, of government regulation uh, over the, you know, what happened with the regulation of the broadcast spectrum that was so much of American culture was affected by a misunderstanding of technology and where technology could go. And here we are now on the cusp or in the middle of a very similar situation. First, let's tell, tell, tell us a little bit about your background. How does a person become a member of the Federal Communications Commission? Well, thanks so much. And obviously, it's, it's again, it's a treat to join you. I've been a big fan of the work that you're doing, not just at the law firm, but uh, on Twitter. Importantly, that's that's really uh, a vital platform uh, for communications right now. And I think people being out there speaking forcefully for free speech uh, are on the side of the angels, even if it doesn't seem like it uh, based on ratios and replies. So thanks for everything you're, you're doing. Uh, you know, I, hardly, personal capacity. I hardly ever get ratioed. Uh, <laughs> but, but you're right, though. What is, it is amazing how many likes really really inane tweets will get although i think that mr musk is beginning to figure out why that's happening and how that's happening yep but we'll get to that well, yeah, soon enough right. i think you're right okay so yeah you know, the fcc is, is yeah it's an interesting place i i came to the fcc back actually in 2012 i just applied through the the gs system was hired by the then general counsel of the fcc who later went on to work for google not too surprising uh but i was just a regular civil servant there had the chance to work uh, eventually for then Commissioner Ajit Pai as a legal advisor to him. And then when he was uh, made uh, chairman of the agency by President Trump, Pai made me general counsel of the FCC. And I just absolutely loved that job. My background was in litigation. I did appellate work, clerkship, the whole nine. Um, really enjoyed that. And then I had the chance to put my uh, hat in the ring to become one of the Republican commissioners at the agency and did that uh, towards the end of 2017. It's sort of been off to the races. Now, I came to the FCC because I assumed that what we did was we watched Super Bowl halftime shows and look for any indecency or wardrobe <laughs> malfunction. I thought you'd show up at the building and they'd give you uh, some binoculars and some tickets to the Super Bowl, but that has yet to happen. Uh, but nonetheless, it's an exciting place. We regulate, obviously, wireless wireline. We have a $10 billion a year 
universal service fund, which subsidizes internet builds in rural areas, does telehealth subsidies, does low income subsidies. Um, and obviously I think we should be playing a, a, a more um, important role when it comes to social media right now. So first let's explain why it is that right now, and probably never, the FCC has no legal authority over social media as such. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you look back at the various forms of technology, the older the technology, the greater regulatory authority the FCC has over it. In the newer technologies, we don't have so, as much regulation. I mean, obviously, you know, radio is heavily regulated. TV is he heavily regulated. Do you send anybody's out there sending telegraphs still? You know, you probably have to have an FC commissioner sitting over your shoulder right now as you type those away. It's so heavily regulated. But when you look at social media, there's just never been such a wide gulf between power on the one hand and accountability on the other. And it obviously doesn't fit neatly into the FCC's traditional regulatory buckets, except for the fact that Section 230 is in the Communications Act. It is Section 230 uh, of the Communications Act, which we administer at the FCC. So I think the FCC should step in and clarify the terms of Section 230, and we can do so in a way that's very pro-speech. And I've been pushing that view for a couple of years. It hasn't garnered uh, a majority of people at the FCC just yet, but I think it's important we do so. Now, other people have said that we should regulate social media in the sense that we should step in and block Elon Musk's purchase uh, of Twitter. And that is something that the FCC uh, absolutely has no authority to do. It's an absurd claim. Um, so we don't have that type of authority but we do have authority to interpret Section 230 and we should do it. But more broadly, Congress should step in because again, this gap between power on the one hand, accountability on the other is unmatched. And the reason why I think this happened was Silicon Valley grew in power in a blind spot for Republicans and Democrats alike. For Democrats, uh, particularly the end of the Obama administration, there was an ideological mind meld where they thought the same way, their politics were the same. So they were happy with those people gaining power and control over speech on social media. For Republicans for a long time, um, there was this sort of fundamentalist libertarian view uh, that was sticking particularly in DC that said, wow, if a, if a big corporation wants to do it, who are we to stand in the way? And I'm, I'm glad to see that a lot of Republicans, myself included, have moved away from that fun fundamentalist libertarian view and say, you know, we need some common sense guardrail because big government is bad, no question. That's the only entity that can put you in jail. Uh, but big corporations can squelch individual liberty. And I think there's a lot of conservatives now that are trying to step into that void and say, you know, yeah, big government bad. We don't actually need big government solutions, but we need something uh, to protect the digital downtown square today. I, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, like you, I began, you know, I, I had a much more libertarian bent, as you can imagine, reading the, you know, writing about the Coase theorem. You see, you know, you see how, how how bad the policy came out, and you know, and how people were able to exploit, uh, you know, their uh, gov uh, government uh, licenses, and how poorly the the you know the the subsequent um, re-slicing and dicing of the spectrum kind of went because you you already had these existing stakeholders. I mean. You, know, you mentioned the old technologies that have so much more regulation. The, the more regulation they have and the older they are, the, the less relevant they are now also. Uh, so yeah. It reminds me of when I was in law school and I, and I was looking for part-time work. And for, for, for a short time, I was working for, a, for, for the um, Santa Fe Railroad writing memo, legal memos about – I forget now what the agency was. I don't even think it exists anymore. They regulated railroads. It was so yeah. – it was so incredibly irrelevant. 
So, you know, you, you could have stopped off and mentioned cable in between TV and the internet. Yeah. But I think we, you know, it's a very odd thing because people our age, more or less, I don't know exactly how old you are. I'm, 15, <laughs> I'm, I'm 59. You're probably a couple of years younger than I am. Um, we remember a world in which there were three networks and there were yeah. a number of independent, you know, stations on every TV. But basically before cable, you had access to five or six TV sources of information. And, you know, not, yeah. no one ever wanted to watch UHF. You know, it was worthless. And you had a handful of newspapers. People don't realize that newspapers, that there are historically have been issues with regulation of newspapers and, and ownership yeah. of newspapers. By the FCC, yep. Newspapers are never have never been less relevant. TV is on the way out. People, you know, with streaming and Netflix. And now here we are in this wild. In, on the one hand, it's a wild west. On the other hand, you have these massive corporate entities. My point about actually the reason I was framing this about about the old networks was, we have this illusion that you know it used to be you could really trust the New York Times and Dan Rather. And what that really meant was nobody could be heard disagreeing with the New York Times and Dan Rather. So if they decided on the narrative and Brinkley and Huntley decided on the narrative and, and Harry Reasoner decided on that, like th there were all these gatekeepers. Now we have the illusion of freedom, but you have, you still have corporate gatekeepers in the form of, Twitter and YouTube who routinely censor information. Yeah. Let's talk about your proposals because this is, I'm going to first start out with your tweet. We don't have to hope that a benevolent person tries to buy a dominant platform, then hope they succeed in doing so. And then hope they enact free speech reforms. Really, really important point. It is scary to think, and this, as of this morning, we don't know if it's even really going to happen or when or what it's going to look like, but that if, but for Elon Musk, who at the very least has changed the conversation and reframed the whole debate, that we might have been prisoners forever of this existing um, paradigm. We can adopt, you say, though, a pro-speech protections and apply them to the digital town square. So you suggested a number of measures to reform Section 230, and I, I assume you know them by heart, so I'm not going <laughs> to make I'm going to not make you uh, read it off the screen. But I will cue you. First, you say you talk about a, a, a reforms to Section 230. What what yeah. do you have in mind? Well, you're right. I think you know a lot of people have been really uh, buoyant and happy about this announcement that Elon Musk is buying Twitter, and they're very hopeful that he's going to bend their content moderation policies towards a greater embrace of free expression. I'm, I'm among those. I'm also hopeful. But, you know, as, as you read there, I, I think we can do a whole heck of a lot more than just hope that this goes through. And who knows, every day there's a rumor it's going to go through, it's going to not. Um, and then hope that if he does get it, he does, in fact, engage in these changes. We can use, um, you know, the authorities that we have to adopt pro-speech reform. And I think there's basically five core things that we have to do. And you can look at them different ways. But obviously, first is Section 230 reform. There's a lot of talk about misinformation. There's a lot of misinformation about Section 230 out there. So I'll try to break it down pretty cleanly uh, and directly. You know, 
there's one main provision or, or one of the main provisions of Section 230 is 230C1, which basically says if you leave someone else's speech up on your website, you're not going to be liable if that speech turns out to be libelous or, or otherwise, you know, illegal or unlawful. I think that's, that's a, a great provision. It's a pro-speech provision. It lets people leave speech up. And everyone focuses on that portion of 230C1 that defends the status quo. Exactly. The problem, among others, is Section 230C2, which has been read by the courts, as Justice Thomas has explained, to give these same websites, internet providers, uh, sorry, websites or uh, internet platforms, carte blanche to censor speech, not just with their First Amendment right and within the scope of that right, but with this statutory Section 230 right. And that's part of the problem. And, and courts um, blew all the doors off the limits that Congress put in 230C2 so that, again, now we're in a situation in which there's just carte blanche to censor. So I think the first thing we have to do is reform Section 230, largely keep C1, um, but take the thumb off the scale in favor of censorship. If you're going to censor, do so consistent with the scope of the First Amendment uh, and its limits, but not the statutory right. That's one. But 230 reform is necessary. It's not sufficient. So I think we need a couple other things. We need uh, some transparency. I mean, it is a total black box right now when it comes to social media. Why are things left up? Why are they taken down? Why do you gain followers? Why do you lose? Um, at the FCC, for instance, you know, when we repealed net neutrality in 2017, which people look at as the synchronon of deregulation, we actually imposed transparency rules. So an ISP, an internet provider today, has to tell you, are they blocking? Are they throttling? What are they doing? Something like that should be applied to technology companies as well. Another component is accountability. So if you are taken down, you have some you know, appeal right, that there's a protection for pretextual takedown. So if they say, you know, well, I'm not taking you down because of political speech, I'm taking you down for this reason, you should have the reason to challenge that. I think we need non-discrimination. There's no question that, that there's a First Amendment analysis that has to be done here because uh, Twitter, Facebook, they themselves have First Amendment rights, but that doesn't mean we can't regulate their content moderation practices at all. And so I think we need to impose some anti-discrimination rules that would uh, constrain that content moderation. But when, you say, dis- pieces- but when you say discrimination, mm-hmm. discrimination of what you mean oh, based on viewpoint, in other words. Yeah, there's a couple of different ways that you could do it. Discrimination could simply be treat like cases alike. So if you're going to take down, you know, a death threat directed at, you know, a conservative, then you should take down a death threat directed at um, someone on, on the left. So an even-handed application is one version of non-discrimination. I think that we should go on another level, though, as well, which could be, you know, political viewpoint, political affiliation. And there's some civil rights laws right now. In fact, D.C., where the FCC is located, has a public accommodation law that says you can't kick someone out of your business based on their political party affiliation. Now, again, there's going to be a First Amendment challenge to this, but I think it's um, we have a, a fairly strong argument that we can make to do it. And then the last piece is user empowerment. You know, look, one of the stated purposes of 230 was to encourage these um, covered internet platforms to give users options to do their own content moderation. And I just think we've lost the balance of that. It's become a completely centralized system or a largely centralized system where Twitter or Facebook makes the decision. My view is let's let people decide. So for instance, you could have you know, a Fox News plugin and that could filter your feed for you, or you can do an MSNBC plugin, or you can get the, the Wild West plugin. Um, I think that would be a good way to go because a lot of people are trying to censor views it's not just that they themselves don't want to hear an opposing view, which frankly is a cultural matter, I think is, 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 a, is a problem, but it goes well beyond that. It is that this idea should not exist. Even two consenting adults that want to exchange this idea 
uh, should be barred from doing it. And so I think that's why user empowerment is good. I mean, this is not, as I say, this isn't bird box at the end of the day. We're not going to hold anybody's eyes open and force them to watch speech they don't want. But let's decentralize some of that, you know, censorship or content moderation and re-empower people. So I think those are the five core things that we want to do. And uh, I, I think it would address and resolve, you know, a very substantial chunk of the problem that we have today. Isn't it a phenomenal thing how media companies, which are basically brand names, hollowed out brand names that have transferred their brand equity to social media, have been so unabashed in attacking up and coming competition. You know, Fox is, forget Fox, um, OAN, you know, they brand them as extremist or off the wall. And it's this, I mean, I'll say this much for Coast. I mean, it's, it's this rent seeking inaction. It's just an extraordinary thing. They, they want to use government or whatever other institutions or regimes are available to them to prevent competition by even delegitimizing points of view and, and like categories of information. So someone comes on and says, we've, we, we've got another way of looking at Russiagate. We've got another way of looking at the election. We've got another way of looking at, at um, how, to, how, to, how to treat or, or prepare yourself or avoid COVID-19. They have succeeded in delegitimizing entire categories of speech. Now we have the Biden administration that wants to go beyond what their corporate um, proxies are doing already for them and put in a czar, a ministry of truth uh, in the guise of Homeland Security. I'm sure you've got thoughts on that. Mm. I do. Well, you know, it was actually two years ago, I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal that the theme of it was disinformation in scare quotes or or quotes, uh, is the new disinformation. And what I meant by that has panned out exactly, which is people have realized that if they slap the label disinformation on political ideas or political viewpoints that they don't like, that they can dismiss them without having to talk about them on the merits. And this disinformation board that the Biden administration has set up, um, you know, it's, it's Orwellian, it's unconstitutional, it's un-American. The best time to shut that down was before they announced it. The second best time is right now. And there's been a lot of focus on the executive director uh, and her prior tweets and, and social media videos. And I'll say, uh, you know, Ron, if you, if you get that uh, uh, Mary Poppins song stuck in my head, you know, our friendship is going to end right here. So I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping we don't go there. Okay, um, I, was, I will not go there. The, no screen sharing the, on that the, one. Yeah, but the reality is, you know, yeah, that's the wrong person for the job. But the most, the more fundamental point is that job should not exist. And, and I'm hopeful that we um, that we get back to that point. Well, that's an. I mean, isn't that an extraordinary thing? Is is the idea of having such a job in the United States government is in and of itself so stunning. And yet the people who suggested it, is it tone deafness or is it just try and stop us to appoint somebody so obviously unsuited for exactly the reasons you would fear? What do you think is, is, is the move? What, what are they, you know, I guess, again, do you, do you think it's just a, a lack of understanding or they want us to know that they know that we know and they don't care. 
Yeah, it's a tough one to figure out what they're thinking there. I, I will say this. I mean, you know, we, we've seen a, a spasm of censorship that, uh, you know, from my perspective, started, you know, after the results of the 2016 election that accelerated uh, during COVID-19. We had this um, lockdown culture, um, you know, everyone was so scared, you know, rightly so of the virus. You know, we want people to take the necessary precautions. We got to silence things that, you know, are inconsistent with that. I think that just, you know, led to this view of legitimizing, you know, censorship, legitimizing the idea that you can shut down um, disinformation, but it, it, it's not good. I mean, for me, I, I look at this from <clears throat> the bookmarks of two speeches from one person, President Obama. Um, in 2012, he gave a speech at the Palo Alto headquarters of Facebook, where he talked about the free flow of information over the internet being vital to a healthy democracy, as he said, 2012. Flash forward to just this year and only a couple miles down the road at Stanford, President Obama gave a speech where he talked about the free flow of information on the internet being a threat to democracy. So vital to a healthy democracy, 2012, 2022, uh, a threat to democracy. Well, what, what happened to result in such a massive pivot? And I would submit that what happened was the outcome of the 2016 election. And all of a sudden, this idea that the free flow of information um, doesn't produce outcomes at the ballot box that some people want is what has sort of led to this surge in, um, in censorship. So uh, I, I think it's, it's a cultural phenomenon that we have to push back on. I, I step back and I tell this story that um, the modern day op-ed launched on the pages of the New York Times in 1970, because the then editor, John Oakes, he gave a speech a little before that, where he said, uh, diversity of opinion is the lifeblood of democracy. The moment we insist that everyone think the same way we do, our democratic way of life is in jeopardy. You know, he wanted expressly views in the New York Times op-ed section that were divergent from those of the editors. And you flash forward now and you got an op-ed in the New York Times, you know, a year or two ago with, with Senator Cotton. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a revolt inside the New York Times because it was an opinion that did exactly what John Oakes wanted to have happen. And the irony, of course, well, a lot of ironies, but one is that um, where the op-ed page was placed used to be where they held the obituaries because it was a, a, a profit-making portion of the newspaper. And so it was, you know, you know, dead people, dead ideas replaced with lively ideas and divergent ideas. And all of a sudden, I guess it's making a 180 back to being a place that, you know, only reflects the views that are consistent with the existing editors. So now let, let's, let's um, try to put ourselves in the shoes of people whose, whose point of view is not the same as ours and who are either libertarians or liberals who like how things are going and who all of a sudden are sounding like libertarians. And they're, and they're saying, how could you possibly, Ron, you, you know, you, you made your bones. We, we, we came to hear of you because of a free speech case that you won. And now you, here you are advocating for regulation. This is really regulation of private enterprise. Uh, you know, this goes back, obviously, to something you said at the very beginning about, you know, a sort of libertarian approach that we had where we, you know, there was a, a tendency to trust corporate America. Uh, I mean, first of all, we see that corporate America will, has no problem operating against what should be its best commercial interests in, in order to 
push some kind of agenda, which I don't really quite understand. But what's the response to how can you and Brendan and Ron be in favor of regulating private companies? Yeah, I get this a lot. And the way I would think about it is obviously there's two poles that are out there. Uh, on the one hand, you have sort of, you know, fundamentalist libertarianism, you know, uh, who is the government to impose any regulation on any private entity? On the other hand, you have, you know, heavy handed intrusive regulation. And my view is, you know, there's, there's a common sense place that we can find in the middle. I don't think the government should be making content moderation decisions. I don't think the government should be saying, you know, this tweet up, this tweet out. I certainly don't think that the government should be doing what it appears the Biden administration is doing, which is going to social media companies and flagging posts and suggesting that they take it down. I think that, you know, that, that veers towards the extreme of the government getting involved in content moderation. But I don't think that we should do nothing either. And that's why I think we can put some, you know, basic common sense pro-speech guardrails in place. We've done it before. In the 1990s, uh, for instance, when cable was just coming online, Congress stepped in because they decided that it was so vital that you be on the cable network to the economic viability of, of broadcasting, that they required cable providers to carry the local broadcast networks. That is a, a, a regime that takes a private entity and says, you know, I know you wouldn't choose voluntary to carry this channel, but I'm going to make you carry that channel for this broader, you know, public interest purpose. And that's a rough analogy to where social media is today. Being on social media is so vital to, I think, sort of um, the public debate. It's where you have that blend of journalists, uh, politicians, everyday Americans. You know, being there is, is so vital to participating in that public policy debate. That I think we should similarly say, look, I, you know, maybe you unfettered would choose not to um, carry this particular political speech but we think there's such an interest um, in having that digital town square uh, embrace free expression that we're going to limit your private right to exclude uh, just a little bit. Again, they're going to raise a First Amendment argument, but I think that that cable case, which went to the Supreme Court, Turner, um, and a handful of others are, are roughly analogous cases that can justify, you know, relatively light touch um, regulations here. And I think what a lot of people forget is that we regulate almost every, no, everything. We are, are either give me the new deal or roll back the new deal. We live in a world in which every business, and not only businesses, but almost everything that people do in public are, is subject to regulation. So if you want to say, let it be different, that it should be different for a social media company because they're in the speech business as opposed to being in the lunch counter business or, or being in the garment business where you're not free to hire whoever you want and you're not free to fire whoever you want. Um, that strikes me as a, as a, a very difficult dis distinction to rely on because these are, these are commercial businesses. They make money from advertising what they actually do is invite consumers to come on to their, to, to their platforms, to participate in their platforms, generate content without being paid as a general rule, in return for which that content, I'm not in return for which, but that content is then used to entice advertisers with access to data and to eyeballs. That in and of itself is not 
speech. That's a business model. We're just like, you know, in a bar, people come to sit down and not just to drink, but to meet with each other, to talk to each other. Same, in other words, this is the analogy. This is the true analogy of the public yeah. square. Isn't just abstract ideas floating around. It's human beings interacting with each other and someone finding a way to make, to make a profit from that. Yeah. We do it all the time. We have historically done it. We've done it with newspapers. We've done it with, as you say, with radio, with TV. It is, and, and you know, it, it is astonishing how, it's never astonishing, I guess, nothing astonishes us anymore, but how quickly people change, change the views. I mean, I think, as you, as you noted, many of us who are much more oriented to libertarianism, uh, growing up reading William F. Buckley, who was, a, you know, and Milton Friedman, we realize now that you have to recognize that, that corporate America, and this is, you know, people made fun of Pat Buchanan talking about globalism in the 80s, but here we are. He, this is exactly yeah. what he was talking about. Well, I think I think you're right. I mean, the the the, the manner in which a, a business operates is relevant, you know, not just to the regulatory framework, but to the First Amendment analysis. And I've got a, a theory that I still have to finish writing up, uh, and my, my team is on me to, to complete this law review article. But I think you can look at the what are called compelled speech cases, the Supreme Court's cases, and put them on a continuum. Right, so, on the one, take a stop because it's really important that non-lawyers understand what aspect of the First Amendment we're talking about here, which is the, the idea, which is to me a joke, that if we, if the government gets involved in telling Twitter what it may not take down, then we're making Twitter carry messaging that is a form of compelled speech. Twitter right. wouldn't want to say that you could take hydrochloroquine. Twitter wouldn't want to say that Trump is an okay guy. And now you're making Twitter say that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You, you start with the baseline proposition that, you know, the government cannot regulate a private entity's decision to exclude, whether that's, you know, things or, or speech. So you start there. But, you know, that's not where the First Amendment case law has come down. So on the one end of the spectrum, I would give you a case, you know, which you, you probably know, Miami Herald versus Tornillo, which is basically a case where Florida tried to force a newspaper to run, you know, opposing editorials when they didn't want to. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. You can't tell a private entity what speech um, to carry or not. And a lot of people that say you can't regulate content moderation point to that case. Well, that's an extreme case as a factual matter. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got cases like the telephone network, right? A common carriage case where, um, you know, we have rules at the FCC that prohibit you from, you know, refusing to hook up a customer or refusing to carry speech because of its, its content. So what distinguishes this spectrum? You know, on the one hand, it is how much of your business is a conduit for the speech of other people. A newspaper is not a conduit for other people's speech. It is the newspaper's own speech. They select every single word. Their own people write every single word. That's not how social media operates. You know, Twitter has a Twitter handle, at Twitter, uh, and we're not saying that the at Twitter account needs to write stuff that they don't believe. They can continue to fully express their view without ever impinging on Twitter's right to speak. What we're saying is, in the main, you're operating as a conduit for other people's speech. And when you do so, I think that that changes the First Amendment analysis. Again, you've got the telephone case on one end, you've got 
2015-2016, when the Obama administration adopted net neutrality rules on the internet, the D.C. Circuit upheld that against a First Amendment challenge and against it. Basically, you know, look, you're you're a conduit for other people's speech. You're not the newspaper. Again, I think the cable case is is somewhere in there as well. And so, well, you know what um, else I would suggest to you? Herald. When you when when you're writing your law review article, you you can cite <laughs> you can cite to my case, Mattel versus Tam, where the government said if we have to register the slants and other disparaging, as we deem it, disparaging trademarks. That's compelled speech on the government. Right. And the court said, Justice Alito said, first of all, who says, who says the government has a First Amendment right not to have its speech compelled? And number two, what are you talking about? Nobody believes that you believe every message right. of every trademark that's on the National Register. It's simply a register of trademarks. It's not speech. It is a conduit. It is a place for people to find out what are what are trademarks that people are claiming to have. Even having a trademark registration doesn't in and of itself guarantee that you have the right. It means that you're claiming you have the right. So yep. people, so that's the compelled speech point. Um, isn't there another First Amendment argument? I guess it's more, no, it's not really a First Amendment argument. It's more the private the private enterprise argument which is not in and of itself a constitutional argument because of what we've done to the commerce clause right i mean there's anything congress can regulate is now uh, in theory i mean and no one really seems to know where the line is but in theory is a subject of congressional regulation in other words you congress can regulate it by, by definition that's what section 230 is I mean, it, yeah, right. Exactly. We have we have Section 230 today. So that's that's sort of the best evidence that uh, Congress can uh, presumably lawfully regulate content moderation. But now, obviously, we're seeing um, some state law efforts as well. Florida, Texas. I do think, you know, the interstate commerce component, um, you know, 230 preemption could be an interesting component of those cases. As we're speaking now, at least um, the Fifth Circuit reversed the stay of the Texas social media law. So that will be going into effect. And so I, I do think that. Um, notwithstanding the fact that there'll be some commerce clause related and preemption related arguments that state legislatures should step forward because we're having a challenge at the federal level right now because you know Republicans and Democrats, they both want to reform social media, but they're sort of pulling on opposite ends of the same thread. Republicans tend to want less censorship. I would say Democrats tend to want more censorship, what they would call you know hateful speech or disinformation. Um, you know, that's their perspective. Uh, but yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have written, you've heard me, if you ever really look at Twitter, you, you couldn't have avoided this. Uh, Will Chamberlain and I wrote an article a couple of years ago about how really you can really frame it as a consumer protection issue. And again, you know, again, users on Twitter are the product, not, not the customer. And if you're going to induce consumers to come onto your social media platform, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Google, build up a business that can be worth many millions of dollars to you in terms of revenue um, and in terms of brand building, and then arbitrarily and capriciously uh, terms that go to administrative law and government, not to, not to private entities, but for no reason at all, yank you off the platform with no recourse whatsoever. It's first of all, hard to imagine that, that Congress had that intention when it enacted 230, as you say in your, you know, the, the short presses that you put up, uh, uh, you know, about your, your proposals. And number two, why would why are consumers any less uh, uh, entitled to the protection from 
that kind of abuse by social media companies that have benefited from the content and from the, from the interactions that people have donated to them in exchange for access to their platform without any recourse. It's, you know, I think I, I, to me, the, the, the Federal Trade Commission Act and the Little FTC Act of the various states also provides um, uh, authority for, for, that, for this kind of regulation or yeah. even, even existing you know, um, uh, you know, re- uh, enforcement. Yeah, I think this is why I think the, the transparency, accountability, one-two punch is so important. I think we should be requiring to the extent that it doesn't already uh, clear terms of service. Because to your point, people are building businesses on these platforms. And there's no business in this country that we would allow to say, hey, I'm selling you product X. And then all of a sudden, you know, bam, it's gone. And it's product Y or, or, or a bait and switch. So I think we should require be transparent about what you do. And then let's hold you accountable to that, just like we would, you know, Joe the plumber or any other business. There's an element of this that is not about speech or First Amendment. It is about conduct and operating consistent with the business model that has induced people uh, to invest in your platform. So much to talk about, Brendan. Thank you so much for taking time to join us. Uh, you know, you you usually have got guests who are uh, press, pushing a book or or, 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 a, or a new documentary. You uh, you work for the FCC. You're you're, you're pushing ideas. Uh, how 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 much longer is your term as commissioner? I got a couple of years left. There's uh, five FCC commissioners generally, and each of us sort of uh, have our term roll up um, one of us a year. So I got a little bit of time left. Good. Well, I, I'm sure you're going to use it very well, and I think you're a very important advocate for clear thinking about this and you have the perspective of someone who really understands these analogies to broadcasting and to regulation. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, you know, remaining in touch with you and hopefully, uh, you know, we'll have another conversation about this as things develop. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ron. Thank you very much for coming on. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.